Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm doing another uh, Clearing the Plains episode again. We took a long break over most of the winter. Um, I did read the whole book, so I have a little bit more uh, idea of what I'm talking about as we go. But uh, I'm still trying to keep it loose and uh, and flowing and throwing uh, a, a lot of my own takes into the subject matter. Just because I want this to feel like I am talking off the top of my head about something that I just read and trying to integrate it into my mindset and the knowledge that I already have and uh, to experience like learning what learning sounds like in real time, at least uh, how I learn how my brain does it. And making these podcasts is part of that process. But uh most of the reason why I took a break was that uh, the book was just too bleak uh, for me to handle uh, all at once, except in very small, like, bite-sized bits. So I just wasn't feeling up to uh, talking about it uh, at all. But uh, I think it still is important to talk about, especially if you live on the Canadian prairies and uh, your uh, family uh, were settlers or are settlers. This is the history that we all kind of know, probably glossed over in uh, any of our formal education, rarely talked about in families, but uh, the story of clearing the plains uh, is our story and it's ongoing, so we got to learn about it, we got to learn where we fit in, and most of all, we got to learn what we can do about it, what we can do within it. Uh, We've got to have information to orient our lives, like... History isn't dead, it's living. The present is history, or will be eventually, etc., etc. Since it's been so long, I wanted to do a recap of the first four chapters, the chapters that we've already read. Uh, Mostly for me to go back and solidify, to practice remembering uh, what I read in the first four chapters, and then practicing uh, talking about it, and integrating it into my own thinking. So, that's what I want to do here. Okay, starting off with chapter one titled Indigenous Health, Environment, and Disease Before Europeans. Prior to contact, uh, Indigenous Americans were living here, obviously, North and South America. I think I said in the Chapter 1 episode, ordinary people living in an ordinary world that is uh, want to avoid the two big mistakes, as in uh, they were not flawless, blemishless uh, people living in an unspoiled utopia, a Garden of Eden sort of situation, Neither were they wild savages living in a wild, savage, and untamed land. Uh, Ordinary people, ordinary world, and by that I mean uh, people with the same uh, mental capacities as us living in a world that is made out of the same physical stuff as our world, current world is, obviously. Um, It seems obvious enough to not need to say, but um, for some people it bears repeating. Also, the experience of a pre-contact indigenous person would be mediated through their cultural conditioning. So in that way, we're not saying by ordinary people, ordinary world, we're not saying that they're experiencing their the world in the exact same way that that we are. Uh, from a from infancy, uh, they're being conditioned to in a completely different worldview than ours. And in that way, I or we don't have access to that same uh, view of the world and the ways of thinking that, that come from it. 
we can infer it, but we can't experience it. So in that way, I'm not trying to uh, speak for Indigenous people in any way, shape, or form. Um, but at the same time, we can find some uh, commonalities due to like the physical uh, nature of the world itself, and that can help us understand their circumstances and also our circumstances a little bit better and, and find uh, reference points that we can uh, use to guide our thinking and uh, find points of similarity that we can use to apply to our own lives and develop a sense of a sense of a shared human experience that uh, you could say transcends uh, historical periods and cultures. I think that's possible to some extent, and you can use that to build uh, relationships with people from other places in the world and, and other cultures that hopefully develop into um, actual relationships of care and solidarity that uh, span real existing differences that would otherwise uh, divide uh, different groups of people. I think that's all I'm getting at there. Basically, I guess, to develop uh, empathy, because uh, you need empathy to develop solidarity, and that's what we want to do. Okay, there was disease, they had warfare, social hierarchy, slavery, etc., there were empires at various times when conditions were right. We know of the Aztecs, the Mayans, the Incas, probably the big three. Uh, there were also uh, democratic federations, uh, like the Iroquois federations. There were, we had horticulturists, uh, farmers, nomadic herders, any type of job, basically, uh, they had and were doing. There were uh, people with specialized knowledge, specialized cultural and religious and uh, medicinal knowledge. Uh, they developed the knowledge, skills, technology, and experience needed to flourish on the land that they occupied. So that's the uh, that's the important part. Here's that they have been here for a long time. Thousands of years, tens of thousands of years. I know some indigenous people who claim that they were always here, that they didn't migrate over. Uh, be that as it may, uh, the point is that these are indigenous people. Uh, uh, one of the things that's that was used against them uh, in the early days of colonization was that they were uh, Asians who had only recently arrived uh, in North America. Um, that is not true, even if they did migrate from Asia uh, through over a land bridge or Polynesia over the sea. Whatever the method of uh, of arriving here uh, doesn't matter. Uh, they are indigenous people to. Uh, North America, South America, Turtle Island. Indigenous meaning they are fully integrated into their landscape, into their geography, their cultures, and religious practices uh, re reflect that integration. They know best uh, how to live here. Um, they have that claim to the land. There were vast trade networks spanning North and South America. As I said, civilizations rose and fell. Large population centers in the 1300s, uh, the city of Cahokia near present-day St. Louis was a large city of similar size to London and other major cities around the globe. Uh, that was in the 1300s. Uh, they exercised sovereign control over their own land. Like I said, gr they were growing crops, cultivating gardens, tending orchards, herding livestock, raising and educating children, uh, mass religious services, practice of medicine, caring for elders, doing everything that all other indigenous people around the world uh, were doing at that time. 
including our European forebears. Uh, their way of life was just as technology and spiritually advanced as anyone else's. It was perfectly suited to the conditions of the land. Uh, in every way that matters, they were the equals of the Europeans that landed on their shores. And uh, in at least one vastly important way, they were absolutely superior in that they knew how to live on the land in North America, uh, on the plains. Uh, the Europeans who arrived here uh, when they did, they had no idea. Um, that's the difference. Uh, we still have no idea, really. Uh, or we kind of do, but we don't really do it. We can acknowledge that pre-contact or pre-industrial societies were similar to our own in that they also experienced social problems similar to the European societies at the time. It's not a justification for European invasion of indigenous territory or the subjugation of their people. As I've personally heard some say, that's part of the, like, the wild savage type type myth. The people doing the colonialism coming in and being like, hey, look at those people. They don't know how to live. They're constantly warring with each other. They're sick, etc., etc. We we need to take care of them because they can't take care of themselves. That's absolute uh, hogwash bullshit, etc., etc. Some people continue to think this way. Some people I personally know continue to think this way. Contact between civilizations, the exchange of goods and technology needn't be a destructive process. Uh, in the case of European contact with indigenous peoples, uh, it was usually uh, apocalyptically destructive, and uh, it, can, it continues to be. Um, so contact between civilizations doesn't necessarily lead to the destruction of one civilization over, over another. But in this process of like early modern European colonialism, empire building, and what have you, the destruction of the indigenous people is inevitably what, uh, what happens. Either their actual physical destruction or the destruction of their culture. That is, the people might still exist, but they are assimilated into the wider empire and functionally cease to exist as a distinct ethnic group. Uh, this is part of the process that we call genocide and ethnic cleansing. And this is a process that happened globally, not just in North America, not just in South America. Um, all, all over the world, wherever European colonial empires arrived, indigenous people suffered. In the early modern era, European kingdoms were competing with each other to establish globe-spanning empires. In order to secure wealth through trade with other civilizations, mo most often the word trade is used as a stand-in for the subjugation, enslavement, and use of indigenous people's cheap labor for resource extraction. Very broad. I know it's very broad, and there are more detailed ways to speak about it, but if you want a general, like, nutshell uh, idea of what colonialism is, that's that's basically it. What the process of empire does, this is the process that built our modern world, and this process has not ended. It continues to undergird our global economy today. The vast majority of the people in the world are treated as living machines, as cheap labor. That's not to overstate it. That includes the majority of people living where I live, in Winnipeg, in Manitoba, and in the agricultural communities of the Red River Valley, where I grew up, where a lot of this, uh, the story of clearing the plains uh, happens. We rarely hear from these people, but they're all around us. And uh, if you're one of them, you know who you are. I certainly am one of them. That's what my entire work experience has felt like. It's what the experience of the vast majority of all wage workers feels like. If you're experience at work doesn't feel like that, you gotta ask yourself why that might be, because uh, you're the odd one out there. 
Think of service workers, essential employees, people working in factories, etc., etc., agricultural workers, the vast majority of people that we collectively think of as the, as the working class. Is the experience of a white working class person the same as an indigenous community that's being forced off their land to make way for families like mine 150 years ago? No, not the same. It's not the same experience as uh, an immigrant working class person working in uh, sweatshop-like conditions in a factory in, in Winnipeg. No, it's not the same. Uh, but the process that turns uh, a downwardly mobile white middle-class person into a working-class person is the same type of process. It's this—it's part of the same economic system that we have today, capitalism. Uh, that's all it is. It's also the same process that uh, brings an immigrant person from uh, halfway around the world to work two or three full-time jobs for minimum wage or less. It's the same process just extrapolated over uh, 500 years. Um, in the case of North American indigenous people, the overall level of uh, suffering, exploitation, alienation, uh, cruelty, and just like naked, unmasked, uh, pure physical violence uh, involved in that process is much more severe, generally, so far. And who knows what the future brings for all of us. Recognizing the points of our histories and experiences that are similar, if not exactly the same, uh, that can be used as a basis for building empathy and solidarity and relationships of mutual care and respect. And uh, we, we need to build those relationships um, if, if we're going to organize to exercise uh, collective power in our families, uh, workplaces, uh, neighborhoods, and, uh, and the wider community. Because honestly, if we don't do it, then people who organize things like freedom convoys are going to do it. That's just the truth. And that's going to be bad news for all indigenous people, all poor people, all working class people, all immigrants, mostly women, especially LGBTQ people, especially trans people. That's what the stakes are at this point. So yeah, if we don't do it, they're going to do it. So let's do it. I know a lot of this stuff isn't in the book itself, but it's operating behind the scenes. I know you're getting a big dose of the John worldview here, so just please bear with me. I think it it bears knowing a, a little bit about what's happening in the background to understand the book more and to understand uh, our present circumstances more. So that's why I'm putting all this uh, political stuff in here. Okay, getting back to history and... Uh, and the story of how we got here and uh, how early modern empires are built and how they built the world that we have today. Uh, the natural world is treated as a simple raw material for the produ production of cheap, shoddy consumer goods, gadgets, and goo that don't necessarily improve our quality of life that we rarely ask for and for which desire has to be artificially generated. This is the goal just to create, uh, to create commodities that can be used for trade, this was the case in the early fur trade. This is the case for all resource extraction nowadays. We're manufacturing goods uh, for use as trade commodities, where we're manufacturing anything at all. Uh, it's not uh, tools or things that can be used that have a useful purpose or value uh, beyond uh, being used to uh, make more profit for the people who own them. 
Uh, yet tool production is not the uh, major driver of our uh, economy. And when we do make those things, uh, they're only available to wealthy people in a privatized system, uh, not for the general public good. Obviously, obviously, there's lots of technologies that are very beneficial. If we could apply them properly, especially in the ways of case of uh, renewable energy sources and, uh, and medical technologies, etc. Obviously, you know, commodities pr- uh, manufactured for trade can also have use, etc., etc., uh, this isn't really tough to understand. It's not politically controversial to say that this process is inherently destructive and unsustainable. And what makes it unsustainable is that profit has to be built into every transaction someone has to to accumulate. Uh, this is the defining feature of capitalism. Why uh, growth must always continue and why accumulation must always continue or else the system fails. But it will also put our environment and our communities and our lives in jeopardy eventually. Uh, but it can't stop. Uh, and that's because of the profit principle. Uh, we can see the destruction of vast swaths of the planet. Uh, you can see our destruction of, the, of communities in wherever we live, especially if we live in a large population center. Um, we can see the effects of the destruction of... Uh, vast swaths of the planet from outer space even. We remove whole mountaintops for uh, coal extraction, for instance, rainforest for uh, lumber, or it's just being cleared and turned into uh, commercial farmland. Need we even mention the Alberta tar sands or any urban industrial environment? The land is literally destroyed. Flint, Michigan with undrinkable water or polluted rivers. People have uh, astronomical rates of cancer living on rivers downstream of factories. And and this destruction is, is seen in the disintegration of our communities. And as our d- communities disintegrate, so do our minds, our epidemics of, our epidemics of mental illness, addiction, etc., etc., come from all this. It's the cognitive dissonance of living in the most technologically advanced period in history, in the most wealthy uh, part of the world, while simultaneously we're being physically and mentally exploited for profit every single day of our lives, and everyone around us is. Uh, th- that leads to, uh, at least to social pathologies, um, violence, addiction, uh, familial abuse, and uh, when that suffering becomes internalized and you believe that you are the source of your own suffering, uh, or that you deserve it in some way, that suffering then, uh, that contributes to a lot of mental illness. When uh, you personally are not the cause of your own suffering, it's because you are living in an external environment that is causing you to suffer. Or if you're a landowner or a small business owner, it's the cognitive dissonance of, of knowing that you what you have, uh, you didn't earn and you don't deserve. And that your wealth and social position is dependent on uh, inflicting suffering on others, uh, whether you uh, mean to or not, or is the result of, of past people's suffering. Uh, if you're a landowner in the Red River Valley, for instance. So you constantly have to shore up that sense of entitlement with making up fairy tales that demonize indigenous and poor people and people who are strange or different than you. Why you fall for all those fairy tales hook, line, and sinker every single time. You're vulnerable to conspiracy theories. Everyone that every conspiracy that comes down the pipe, you fall for. Uh, it's all just 
shoring up uh shoring up your sense of grievance and paranoia about losing what you have that you know you don't deserve in the first place because your your small amount of wealth that you're afraid of losing and your social position is com- is completely made up like you got your business or your land or your inheritance from your grandpa or your dad and uh, the government gives you uh, grants to subsidize uh, your payroll and uh, you conveniently have any number of uh, tax breaks and loopholes to take advantage of so your your position or your business can't exist on its own it's being completely propped up by the government and you rely solely on government handouts to survive um, like you're the actual welfare queen in your own head, and you know that everyone around you knows it. Uh, meanwhile, you portray yourself as some some sort of uh, very uh, hardworking, uh, independent, successful, some sort of community leader, uh, when those things are completely made up. Uh, uh, that causes a lot of cognitive dissonance. Uh, it's very hard to be honest with yourself uh, in those types of situations i i haven't encountered uh one rural small business person who's able to do it yet that doesn't mean they're not out there though uh the same sort of process is is in effect for people who have like a like prestigious uh advanced degrees that they're able to transmute uh, familial wealth into uh professional uh qualifications so they develop all the affectations of of an aspirational middle-class uh, person. And uh, that comes with the same amount of uh, cognitive dissonance and leads them to uh, act strangely and, and uh, develop a number of neuroses. Probably not fun. I'm not making fun of these people uh, at all. I have, I have my own mental illness to deal with. But if you're one of these types of people, you likely haven't uh, figured it out yet. Uh, but you're caught up in the system as well and being exploited by it in the same way that you are forced to exploit your employees and kick down at vulnerable people at every opportunity just in case they were to uh, climb over you to a higher rung on the ladder. Uh, The ladder is also made up, by the way. Obviously, this is oversimplified and not very nuanced. Kind of this is the process of how it works in a very broad nutshell. That's all. So the story of the European contact with indigenous people on the Canadian prairies is part of this larger, currently unfolding global scenario that we're all uh, caught up in and experiencing in some way. So that's why it's important to learn about this stuff, that their story, the story of indigenous people where we live, is the story of what's uh, happening to uh, us now. The whole um, Nick Estes of the Red Nation, his book, Our History is Your Future, I think that's what it's called. That's the whole. Uh, that's the whole idea there. So, okay, that's enough of my political editorializing for now. Getting back to James Dashick and what's in the book. Uh, pre-contact plains dwellers relied on uh, the vast bison herds for the vast majority of their needs: food, clothing, shelter, tools, etc. Beaver were plentiful, and they regulated the water supply, protecting human communities from drought in a relatively dry grassland ecosystem uh, due to plentiful food and water and high protein diet uh, probably a decent amount of leisure time compared to labor time probably more leisure time than we have now like honestly Uh, living in large close-knit multi-family units 
pre-contact people on the planes likely enjoyed a level of physical health far surpassing an ordinary uh, European person of the same time period. In such a situation, you could probably imagine that uh, their mental health was pretty good as well. They're probably feeling pretty good uh, physically and mentally and spiritually in that uh, in a tight knit a large community where uh, all your needs are met with a minimal amount of labor, with a religious system that that conditions you seamlessly into into this world, where there's no um, cognitive dissonance uh, leading to mental illness and so- social pathologies. Um, this isn't the Garden of Eden or Utopia by any means. This is the condition of uh, most people pre-contact. Or I'd say uh, even Europeans pre-industrialization. You could say pre-Christian, maybe. Uh, not here to quibble about that. Um, disease was present mainly in the form of tuberculosis, which was endemic to the bison populations. From time to time, it would cross over into the human populations th- uh, through the eating of infected meat, and that's how it would get into the human population. But the overall rate of sickness and disease was minuscule compared to the constant rolling epidemics beginning uh, post-contact. We have climate change is a factor in in migration. Starting at, at some point in the 1300s, thereabouts, we have the end of the medieval warm period and the beginning of the Little Ice Age, likely caused in large part due to uh, volcanic action, large eruptions throwing huge amounts of uh, ash into the air, shading the land, cooling the planet. People think the Black Death uh, had something to do with the Little Ice Age as well, and it very well could have that the Black Death killed off enough people in Europe that the actual CO2 levels in the air fell, leading to cooling temperatures. So you have crops failing, uh, rivers and lakes freezing over that didn't freeze before, the Norse settlements in Greenland and other places in North America failed. The ancestors of the Inuit people that live in Greenland, though, uh, their settlements didn't fail. They stayed uh, and they adapted. So that's the time at which the society at Cahokia dissolved. The site was abandoned um, as people from the east in North America, the eastern uh, woodland sort of region, their their crops are failed. They're moving moving westward, looking for for greener pastures, basically. Climate change is is a driver of mass migration nowadays as well. That's nothing new. Um, the society at Cahokia likely was suffering uh, due to crop failures and the mass influx of people from the east. Uh, so people dispersed from the city. I think in the book it mentions that there was a mass loss of faith in the religious institutions at Cahokia that led to the dispersal of the people there. And probably with the changing climate causing hardship along with the mass influx of of uh, migrants from the east that would have been very uh, destabilizing to the society there. Its cultural uh, infrastructure probably was just not able to handle it, and the um, the priests and the ruling elite were not able to keep um, a handle on on the populace. So the so the society broke down and the and the site was abandoned. Uh, so people dispersed from the city, uh, migrated to the open plains, and greatly disrupting. Existing people groups on the plains, uh, different people groups merged, some dissipated, some grew larger. Uh, this is the process of ethnogenesis that 
James Dashig mentions several times, the post-contact Plains tribes, those basic groups uh, started uh, coming into, into being at that time. Okay, that's chapter one. Um, chapter two, the early fur trade, territorial dislocation and disease. Okay, this is uh, picking up a couple centuries after initial European contact. Uh, the French established the fur trade in Montreal, the Cour de Bois venture west, uh, trapping furs and trading with indigenous peoples on the plains, the parklands, boreal forest. Uh, the Hudson Bay Company establishes the fur trade in northwestern Canada. Uh, in the 17th century, the British Crown grants the HBC a monopoly in trade, which is a de facto monopoly in governance over the entire Hudson Bay watershed, an area roughly third of the size of present-day Canada. And that's now under con direct control uh, by one single joint stock company. This situation is duplicated by the British and other European empires all over the world. Uh, the East India Company is one example. There are slight variations. And that sets the basic pattern for global capitalist empire building uh, that continues today. Um, indigenous people were initially uh, involved in more various capacities. Uh, it is in more equal type uh, roles in the fur trade. Um, the, the driving force, the, the demand for furs in Europe uh, wasn't for like warm clothing or anything like that. I have, I've been saying it a lot, the fancy hat trade. It is literally, literally the fancy hat trade. It's a luxury, uh, luxury fashion uh, for like the rising uh, middle classes. That's uh, driving people to go out and get these furs. They've overhunted the furs in Europe. They don't have beavers anymore. Uh, they used to have beavers there. Uh, beavers have recently been reintroduced. That's uh, also kind of interesting. But yeah, that's why people were coming over to get beavers. That's why this whole thing is happening. That's why Canada exists for uh, fashion, for middle-class people. That's basically it. Yes, obviously that's an oversimplification. But even if you want to add some detail and nuance to it, the principle's pretty much the same. Um, so Europeans show up, they started establishing the fur trade. Uh, the indigenous people are uh, happy to help out. They are on more equal footing with the Europeans at the time. They certainly uh, outnumber them uh, in their lands, certainly here on the plains and in the parklands, wherever the, the fur-bearing animals are. They're doing more more of an equal trade sort of sort of deal. They worked uh, directly as fur, harvester, fur harvesters or middlemen. Uh, that's people who delivered furs to the trading posts or factories, as they are called. This is a, is a turning away from traditional... Uh, ways of life, obviously, and that wasn't without uh, controversy or detriment to their uh, to their communities. Both men and women participated in the in the fur trade as well, because uh, so many people did switch from like traditional uh, horticulture and and seasonal hunting patterns that the that the economies at home did suffer. The commodification and commercial trade of beaver pelts. This undermines the traditional religious practices which considered the beaver to be sacred and exempt from hunting. Depletion of beaver and other game in the Hudson Bay Basin was noted even prior to 1700, so like a couple decades after the Hudson Bay Company showed up. Um, rolling smallpox epidemics deriving from contact with infected Europeans uh, began decimating indigenous communities on the plains and all over northwest Canada and what are called virgin soil epidemics, in which up to 90% of the population or more of villages could be lost in one, in a single episode. 
This is in the 1700s. Uh, due to these virgin soil epidemics, some people groups become extinct, some merge together, others migrate again. These virgin soil epidemics are the apocalypse for the people living at the time. There's lots of post-apocalyptic sci-fi literature, apocalyptic thinking going around these days. Uh, the indigenous people uh, living here experienced the apocalypse uh, in the 1700s. That's when that happened. And the apocalypses happen all the time. They're constantly happening all, all over the place, and they can happen to the same people several times. So just because the apocalypse isn't currently happening to you doesn't mean that it's not happening. That's another thing to keep in mind. It's happening to someone somewhere. Um, this is the defining catastrophe of the Plains peoples that Dashik says. Um, this is the, the turning point or the, the tipping point uh, for them. The thing when, when everything changed, the trending decline becomes uh, permanent or inevitable. Their societies would be forever changed and uh, their numbers uh, would never recover. Uh, not during the timeline of this book anyway. So that's chapter two. Moving on to chapter three. Early competition and the extension of trade and disease, 1740 to 1782. Okay, so we have the horse. The horse trade reaches the Western Plains, coming up from Mexico, following the spine of the Rocky Mountains up to Alberta. Uh, this gives Plains peoples a powerful new tool in the, in the bison hunt. They can practice their traditional way of life more efficiently. Less work, more play. You have horses now. That's pretty awesome. Um, groups such as the Anishinaabe migrate west from around the Great Lakes to the plains and the parklands. During this time, they're following the fur trade, and they're taking advantage of the labor shortage caused by the evisceration of the existing plains and parklands dwellers by smallpox. They had their virgin soil epidemics uh, before the plains peoples did. You can imagine their societies had recovered somewhat, and the people that survived virgin soil epidemics uh, are not as susceptible to uh, further epidemics. There is some measure of like uh, resistance uh, of like biological resistance that they've uh, that they've built up. Uh, they bring skill and experience in the fur trade. They were involved in the fur trade before the plains peoples were. They all, they brought with them a powerful religion and culture that the uh, existing people groups found intimidating. They probably also experienced the Anishinaabe arrive, arriving as uh, as immigrants horning in on their uh, jobs and role in their economic system, which is the fur trade now, basically. Uh, this leads to uh, tension, violent confrontations. Uh, more Canadians and Europeans begin arriving in the Northwest. They're also taking advantage of, of the decimation of the Plains and Parklands tribes. There's a, a demand for labor. The demand for furs is not diminishing, but the uh, previous laborers have all died of smallpox. So these are people moving in to fill that new void in the labor market. And that's how people, the mass, the suffering of mass groups of people is viewed uh, by, by smart economics type people as filling a void in the market. That's just a nice way of saying uh, taking advantage of suffering and death. Okay. Yeah, the existing style of trade, the like the pre- smallpox uh, mode of trade like using indigenous people like the Cree as middlemen is undermined fades as more and more trappers and independent uh, traders flood the area so uh, white people coming in here Canadians and British Europeans coming in and taking over the role that the uh, that people like the Cree had 
The intensification of the fur trade leads to a much greater demand for food in the area. The bison uh, are now commodified and commercially hunted. The meat is processed into pemmican as food for the fur traders. Uh, Bison numbers uh, start to decline after this point, but bison would remain plentiful for some time after this. Uh, New cultural and national identities are formed based on this new commercial bison trade. Uh, And the principal one coming out of that here in Manitoba is the Red River Métis. That's chapter three. Moving on to chapter four, despair and death during the fur trade wars. And uh, this is where all hell breaks loose. Um, Following the defeat of the French by the British in the Seven Years' War, uh, the British take over New France. They start calling Quebec, Quebec. Anglo-Scottish fur traders in Montreal establish the Northwest Company to compete with the Hudson's Bay Company. That undermines um, that undermines the trade and de facto governance monopoly granted by the British Crown to the Hudson's Bay Company uh, over the Hudson's Bay watershed. Uh, the Northwest Company is kind of interesting. Uh, it was founded by Scottish Anglo merchants in uh, Montreal. There's an Anglo-Scottish sort of uh, upper class in, in Montreal uh, established after the British takeover, the uh, the French citizens become more uh, working class, secondhand type citizens. That's a, a class division that uh, persists to this day. And the uh, Northwest Company itself was uh, was racially uh, divided. There was a racial har- hierarchy within uh, the Northwest Company. The original Scottish Anglo uh, founders um, generally held on to control through their families, through uh, sons and nephews, uh, in-laws, that sort of thing. Uh, they formed the like the little uh, managing uh, ruling class uh, within the company, but the actual work, the actual workers were more racially diverse. Like the Cour de Bois voyageur type workers were more French, and then you have the Métis as well, and then you have uh, the indigenous trappers and. Uh, the still existing uh, middlemen uh, on the bottom, but uh, they had very little say in the actual like uh, uh, decision-making process of their day-to-day work, and uh, no say whatsoever in the in the governance of of the country. That was kept uh, strictly, uh, literally within the family. In the case of uh, the Northwest Company, so that's kind of interesting. I mean, yeah, talk about nepotism. The uh, Northwest Company had it down. And that's generally still how businesses are run nowadays. Uh, it's very easy to see in small and medium-sized businesses. But if you want a good picture of how uh, the Canadian government and uh, economy is is uh, run still right now to this day, uh, just take a look. Take a look at the Northwest Company. That's all you need to know. Uh, take a look at the names of the families of the founders of the Northwest Company and see how many of those are uh, familiar. Like, uh, a lot of these families are still wealthy and still exert a lot of influence in, in the country uh, to this day. Uh, this competition for business between the two rival companies leads to a long and escalating series of conflicts between the 1780s and 1820. On the plains, it's known as the Fur Trade Wars or the Pemmican Wars. Uh, this is the time where I think that uh, Netflix series starring Jason Momoa, I forget what it's called. There's a Netflix series starring Jason Momoa that is set uh, during this time. I haven't watched it. Have any of you watched it? I I don't know. Is it good or not? Maybe I'll maybe I'll watch it. I think I've watched a few episodes, but didn't really it didn't really take. 
maybe I'll try it again. Uh, Fur traders from the HBC and the Northwest Company, as well as like small independent concerns uh, and independent trappers and traders are coming west. They're ranging further northwest. It's just uh, free for all. New beaver-rich territories were highly contested. The HBC, the the NWC, and independent Canadian free traders used increasingly unscrupulous means to induce the indigenous trappers to part with their furs for as little in return as possible. When people start talking about free trade, keep that in mind that this is the history of free trade in our area. Uh, Free trade means the uh, unregulated and unabashed uh, exploitation of the of people in vulnerable positions by people in stronger positions. That's what free trade means. The Montreal-based traders sold the indigenous trappers shoddy or defective goods. They plied the indigenous trappers with cheap alcohol. Then once they were drunk, they persuaded them to sell their furs for less than their actual value or simply stole their furs once the indigenous trappers were incapacitated. Other times, the British and Canadians took furs by force or simply just murdered the indigenous traders and took the furs. Free trade, folks. Uh, The HBC goods at this time were also pretty cheap and shoddy, but uh, I've mentioned the book uh, Prison of Grass by Howard Adams. That's where a lot of this like more visceral information uh, is coming from. Um, James Daszak does mention it, but not in the same level of, of detail. But Howard Adams is descended from people who, indigenous people who uh, experienced these things and talked about it. And that's uh, a little bit more visceral, a little less uh, unadorned with uh, social niceties. It's important to um, cut past some of the uh, social convention when we talk about this stuff. We're talking about uh, stealing and murder, uh, abuse, exploitation, uh, intentional intentional uh, inducement of alcoholism, basically, for the purpose of exploiting people in trade. A slave trade was established. Uh, indigenous women were trafficked by traders. Canadians stole indigenous women, sold them into slavery, or just flat out sexually abused them or took them as wives or whatever, uh, kidnapped them. God knows what else they did. We need to note that this uh, trafficking in indigenous women is not a thing of the past. Uh, it continues to this day. Uh, what do you think the prostitutes downtown are? Those aren't empowered uh, sex workers or independent sex small business people. Uh, those are people at the end of their tether who are being literally trafficked. Or they are self-exploiting uh, against what they would prefer to be doing with their lives. And that puts them in an extremely vulnerable position. Uh, Every once in a while, uh, one of them goes missing. Uh, And every once in a while, uh, one of them turns up dead in a dumpster, Uh, just like what happened here uh, recently, uh, which I'd rather not go into. But uh, there's potentially potentially a uh, serial killer of indigenous women uh, recently active in Winnipeg. Uh, They caught him. He was uh, a white guy in his mid-30s. Uh, heavily involved in the online uh, far-right, alt-right, whatever you want to call it. Uh, The same kind of destructive fascist uh, evil that uh, the organizers of the Freedom Convoy were, are into. Uh, Just like blatant uh, misogynistic, racist uh, white supremacy. Example of just extremely uh, aggrieved and paranoid uh, masculinity. But uh, this is... This is not new. This is part of Canadian history right right from the get-go. 
this is just uh we're talking about apocalyptic this is pretty hellish this is a this is a hellscape uh, that's the that's the sense that i'm getting you can see why uh why i needed to take a break uh it's pretty bleak local populations turned on the canadians as their communities and environment were desecrated they tried to preserve their way of life and they're fighting for their own existence basically at, at this point their physical existence um as this was happening at the end of the 1700s climate steps in again uh Temperatures get a little bit colder, weather becomes more volatile and unpredictable, uh, which added to the hardship. The horse herds uh, maintained by the plains communities uh, became unsustainable due to the lack of available food. This affected the viability of plains communities, as they now relied solely on horses for the bison hunt. They weren't hunting on foot anymore. Um, they hadn't hunted on foot for uh, for generations at this point a community without horses could not effectively hunt the bison and their existence was endangered so intertribal violence broke out and there was a, a lot of horse raiding going on this is when like uh, europeans coming west would have uh, encountered uh, indigenous people uh, doing the intertribal uh, warfare kind of thing and getting the sense of wow these these people are violent savages wow. um no they're not they're fighting for their lives the uh, the climate has changed. Their societies are basically breaking down, and uh, uh, they're taking uh, extreme measures in response to uh, extreme uh, material conditions. Uh, by the 19th century, the continued viability of the people and environment of the plains was in serious jeopardy due to the unrestrained competition in the fur trade. This is what happens when you get uh, unrestrained competition. So as a result of this uh, serious Social pathologies such as alcoholism and violence had taken hold in the members of Plains communities. Game depletion brought uh, famine conditions to many areas. The extermination of fur-bearing animals permanently changed the ecology of entire regions. As the fur trade wars reached peak intensity, uh, combined epidemics of measles and whooping cough swept through Plains communities already on the brink of collapse. So uh, a lot of communities did not survive that. Uh, traditional indigenous seasonal economies were permanently disrupted. Uh, if they were hanging on by a thread before, due to the reliance on the fur trade, they uh, were eliminated now. Uh, they couldn't re-establish the tr traditional uh, seasonal economies. The existence of Plains communities now relied directly on highly exploitative and abusive practices by the British and Canadian fur traders. So the indigenous communities that did survive were completely dependent on the only economy going in the region now, which is uh, the fur trade. And their position in that fur trade was now completely subservient to the British and Canadian traders. And this experience is analogous to the uh, forced integration uh, into the working class of European peasants, where uh, tr uh, the new capitalist economy arrives, it undermines uh, local traditional economies, uh, people are forced to take up the new economy because their old economy is n not viable anymore. Uh, likely because your local uh, landlord has become an enthusiast of uh, advanced industrial farming practices and uh, has therefore uh, put up hedges all around uh, his land and uh, split it up and uh, cleared you off it. It's not exactly the same experience, but the process is the same, and the forces driving the process uh, are the same. Uh, ironically enough, the Scottish crofters that we're just about to talk about 
and who were the original uh, Selkirk settlers, underwent a similar experience, though not exactly the same, obviously. Uh, there's a jargon term for this experience. Uh, actually, it's called proletarianization. But you don't have to remember that, and you certainly shouldn't uh, use it to, uh, to uh, show off. Because if you're a downwardly mobile uh, member of the petty bourgeois class or the middle class, that's uh, likely what you're experiencing right now. Okay, back to the book. In the early 1800s, the HBC established at this time an agricultural community uh, around the forks of the Red and Assiniboine Rivers in what is now Manitoba. Obviously taking advantage of the inability of the existing uh, indigenous communities to maintain control of that area. They took the Scottish peasants, which were who were forced off their traditional lands uh, in the highlands, that's called the Highland Clearances. These people went to the cities, started clogging up the cities, and there was a mass influx of, of the poor peasants uh, in the cities. If you're part of the ruling class of such city, you certainly can't have uh, hordes of uh, starving, angry peasants milling, milling around. That's uh, bad news for you. Uh, it will be eventually. A guy named Lord Selkirk, not too sure what his involvement or relation to the Highland Clearances was. The basic materials paint him as a philanthropist uh, who was trying to alleviate the suffering of the uh, Scottish peasants. But you always have to take that philanthropic uh, framing with a, with a grain of salt. Uh, same as are billionaire philanthropists in the 21st century, um, like uh, British aristocrats, weren't doing anything for purely uh, benevolent reasons. And the Selkirk settlement in Manitoba obviously uh, wasn't established for purely benevolent reasons, and the existing people uh, in the Red River Valley would likely have not viewed the establishment of uh, an agricultural colony in their land as a particularly benevolent thing. So Lord Selkirk's big idea uh, was to resettle the displaced uh, Highland crofters, get them out of the country, out of Scotland, and uh, offload them here into Manitoba. At least they can have lives for themselves, and the HBC can benefit as well. Uh, you can control the land, once controlled by the indigenous groups, and you can grow food for the fur trade in, in increasingly famine-like conditions. So this is what you call the settler colonial project on the prairies. This is where it really begins here, is with the uh, Selkirk settlement. Um, so yeah, like we said, this has the effect of offloading responsibility of caring for the poor and dispossessed. Uh, it takes that away from the government and ruling classes in Britain. It provides another means of commercial food production for the Hudson's Bay Company uh, in the face of diminishing bison herds. And it occupies and secures the land from the existing indigenous inhabitants, ensuring that the proceeds of the commercial activities always remain in control of the HBC and not in control of increasingly hostile indigenous residents. Uh, this is what settler colonialism is all about. So that's what they did there. Uh, this is still the game plan today. Um, like the shock doctrine and disaster capitalism uh, isn't a new thing. This is just capitalism. It's just how it works. And of course, like the, the ethnic cleansing of, of a region and the replacement of the indigenous population with, with a more loyal or favorable group is is something that uh, that empires have been doing for since the beginning of empires, basically, for 
thousands of years. That's definitely how my family and the Mennonites arrived here. Uh, the Canadian government thought that it would be more advantageous to them to bring in some uh, ethnically German folks. Uh, the next best thing to a true born and bred wasp that they could find at the time, who uh, largely have already fully assimilated into the uh, capitalist mode of production and uh, have a pretty good uh, reputation for land management on behalf of uh, other empires, in this case, the Russian Empire. So the Canadian government chose them to uh, manage the farmland of the Red River Valley on their behalf. Uh, rather than uh, the existing Métis and indigenous occupants of it. Uh, basically because they could be trusted not to rebel or try to develop their own national identity and uh, establish their own country. Uh, Mennonites don't do that when the going gets tough. Uh, we run away. So if your family's derived from settlers and they uh, emigrated here through uh, legitimate, legal, normal means... Uh, and they're not refugees or anything, that's uh, likely why they qualified to come here as well. Because they are amenable to capitalism, and uh, they're not likely to uh, form a union or rebel against the state. Uh, not too much anyway. So uh, getting back to the uh, early 19th century, uh, the fur trade wars came to a head with uh, the Battle of Seven Oaks. When I was a kid, I was taught it as the uh, Seven Oaks Massacre. The Métis also refer to it as the uh, Battle of Frog Plains. And that is when at the Red River Colony, 28 HBC men led by Rupert's Land governor and American businessman Robert Semple, not someone from here, not someone who has any real idea of what's going on here, is appointed governor of Rupert's Land. That's the the land controlled by HBC, the vast swath of territory like we've mentioned before, he's appointed to be the de facto ruler of this area. His name is Robert Semple. He appropriated a much-needed supply of pemmican meant for the uh, local population at the Red River Colony and attempted to ship it out to HBC po posts in the north. The Red River Colony wasn't it wasn't only former Scottish peasants that, that were settled in the Red River Colony. There were also existing uh, large groups of Northwest Company men, Métis people, and Indigenous people were still there and still, still mixed in. And the Scottish peasants were mixed in with them. So a group of 60 Métis, Indigenous, and Northwest Company men led by Cuthbert Grant intercepted this shipment at Seven Oaks. This was food meant to feed the local populace. Uh, the HBC wanted to ship it out to uh, northern uh, HBC posts. The HBC men responded with violence, initiating a gunfight that ended with the deaths of 21 of their men, including Governor Semple. Uh, after this incident, because of the clear unsustainability of the unregulated fur trade, by unsustainability we don't mean the they weren't concerned with the sustainability of the environment or the local populace, it was they were concerned with the sustainability of the industry, of the fur trade itself, uh, that the cash kept flowing, that the furs kept flowing. The furs must flow. The British government then forced the Northwest Company to merge with HBC, reestablishing the, the trade and governance monopoly in the region, bringing with it a relative stability. 
that's it. The fur trade wars are ending with the merger, the forced merger of the Northwest Company into the Hudson's Bay Company. And that reestablishes monopoly conditions with which reestablish a sense of stability. Although not everything is uh, cheery and, and rosy after that, obviously. There's still half of the book to go. That's the end of chapter four. Short recap. Pre-contact. Indigenous people in the New World, North and South America, Turtle Island. Ordinary people, ordinary world, indigenous peoples, sovereignly occupying land that they cultivate and manage with complex societies, religions, and cultures, with large population centers. There's some disease, but relatively exceptional health on the plains due to the high-protein diet based on plentiful bison meat. Climate change exists and is a factor. Climate change drives mass migrations west to the plains in the 1600s. European fur traders establish trade at Hudson's Bay, changing the economy and ecology in the region. Trade brings rolling smallpox epidemics, decimating plains communities, forever changing the population. Mass migration of eastern indigenous and independent European traders into territory formerly controlled by indigenous communities decimated by smallpox. This increases competition for resources, resulting in widespread violence and suffering. Uh, the convergence of unregulated trade, disease, and climate change creates escalating conditions of scarcity and attendant violence and suffering called the fur trade wars or the pemmican wars, which further decimates indigenous communities and ultimately leads to the undermining of the commercial fur trade itself. The British government forces the Northwest Company to merge with the HBC, a re-establishing re-establishing relative stability through trade and government's monopoly. And this essentially is what happens all the time in, in our capitalist system. Uh, capitalist exploitation intensifies to such an extent that it undermines the capitalist system itself, which then collapses, which then is then reinforced from above through governmental means, through regulation. And then it starts up again and starts starts doing its thing again and then eventually deregulates itself and collapse again and collapses again and so on and so forth. Ad nauseum, people who have been alive for several decades have lived through uh, at least one or two of uh, these sorts of things already, um, except the latest one that we're, I guess, that we can recognize as being a historical event at this point in 2008 there wasn't really the, uh, we didn't, uh, the government didn't step in with more uh, regulations to st stabilize the economy, uh, not in the US and not in Canada anyway. Uh, in Iceland, they uh, actually sent uh, their bankers to jail, but uh, I don't we'll ever have the guts to do that. Uh, they just pumped mo more money into the into the system. We're continuing to deregulate it as we speak, so uh, that's going to be fun to experience the chickens coming home to roost which we're currently doing um so yeah okay not to get too bleak not to get too depressed um we're gonna keep uh slogging forth and uh learning the history of the place where we live <laughs> mark my words it's gonna happen okay i'm gonna try to do chapter five uh, shortly. Hopefully it doesn't take another few months to get to it, because like I said, uh, this is important and I want to do it. I know I'm making a lot of mistakes as we go, and I don't speak very well, but this is practice for me, and I want to show people of my cohort that is like rurally raised, downwardly mobile, middle class-ish men in their 
30s and 40s. We have no excuse, okay? If I can if I can learn our history, uh, so can you. Especially in the wake of the like ridiculous freedom convoy happenings that will most likely flare up again in the in the at some point uh, that we had to live through that everyone in Canada was subjected to, um, and probably a, a lot of men in in my cohort in in my location. Uh, we're sympathetic to. That's a huge mistake. Uh, and the way to uh, remedy this ma- mistake, to keep making these types of mistakes, is basically to learn history and then to develop a sense of working class self-awareness and a practice of solidarity uh, amongst the ordinary people among us, the ones that are still committed to living within uh, reality. The aim is to build solidarity through relationships of mutual care with people who we know and with people who we don't know as much as possible. And uh, that's, uh, that's about it. We got to break out of our shells and break out of our small, paranoid, and narrow-minded uh, ways of thinking that were handed down to us by our fathers and their fathers, because frankly, they didn't know what the hell they were talking about. In most cases, God bless them, uh, especially if they are coming from a uh, Mennonite family that has uh, remained rural for the last, I don't know, 150 years since we've arrived in Canada. Uh, or if you've arrived uh, like after the Russian Civil War, if you're yeah from a Mennonite family, there's actual like material reasons why you wouldn't necessarily know how the outside world works and uh, and why you wouldn't care and why you'd be very much resisting uh, blending in with the hoi polloi. Because that's the that's the number one motivator for Mennonites is to uh, never ever mix with the hoi polloi. Uh, on, only do charity on them, and uh, by all means, uh, you should never ever become a hoi polloi yourself. Uh, but that's over. That doesn't exist anymore. So adapt or die. Uh, adapt or or wither away like a Viking settlement in Greenland. Uh, at least uh, mentally or spiritually. Anyway, I want to adapt. I want to thrive and be healthy, and I want the same for everyone around me. So hopefully we can do that. Relationships of care and solidarity so that ordinary people can organize to assert their dignity and self-respect and exercise power and control within their communities, especially and even their rural communities. And by ordinary people, I mean working people, people that work for other people. And if there are any like-minded uh, owners, landowners, or business owners uh, among you in uh, in the rural communities where we grew up, uh, they're welcome to join us as well. As long as they know they're not special and they don't try to be the boss. And they're willing to work democratically and nobody tries to be some sort of enlightened, benevolent manager or HR-style person. Uh, but there's a lot of work to do. And uh, the time is now. It has been for some time. Okay, uh, we'll leave it at that, and we'll catch you with Chapter 5 next time. See you later.